Welcome back to Night Cheese. This is Steven. And I'm Tim. And uh, I want to welcome you back. Tim, Tim is going to be Sorry, I had a pausing for dramatic effect. Delay. Yeah, exactly. This week, uh, <laughs> I didn't want you guys we... to think I'd been departed. Yeah. Okay. What Tim was actually doing was oh just goodness. writing down, and I'm Tim, on a notepad yeah. <laughs> and holding it up to his webcam. Yeah. Um, you so can see it, what? Yeah. I'm sorry. Just, you know. <laughs> Um, anyways, uh, we are joined again by dear friend of the show, Jared. Jared, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. And, uh, as promised, uh, thank you, by the way, everybody for your, uh, warm feedback on our impromptu Chadwick Boseman episode. Um, for those of you who are still kind of, you know, um, wrestling with all that, I will say, cause we shared a few parting words from different, um, people who were close to him that worked with him. Um, I don't have it in front of me and I'm not going to read it because we have a different kind of, well, heavy discussion to do tonight with uh, the leftovers. But um, Lupita Nyong'o, who played Nakia in Black Panther, has finally kind of made sort of a public statement. And, um, you know, as as hers, I I felt like was was really thoughtful. and I will say she shared a quote that I thought was really inspiring, which I think she she attributed to learning from Chadwick Boseman's wife, which was take your time, but don't waste your time. Um, and she just spoke really like like everyone has spoken really highly of him and um, the effect he had on everybody else. So I just I just happened to read that today and, and thinking about the last episode, thought I'd bring that up. Um, want to thank everybody for all your feedback and um and following us on Instagram and Twitter. And um, we are <clears throat> tonight covering the HBO series, The Leftovers, uh, which has has been off the air for, for a number of years now. Um, really, this one's my fault. Um, so during our time isolated here at home, uh, like I'm sure some of you, uh, it, it's been a great opportunity to catch up on content that you mm-hmm. have not seen before. So... Um, let the leftovers is a uh, sort of dramatic mystery supernatural maybe television series um created by damon lindelof and tom parada damon lindelof of course uh behind um big series such as lost uh hbo's most recent Watchmen series um things like things like that and um so being the big fans of lost that we are um i i finally got on board to watch the leftovers and i just semi recently finished it and so uh jared and tim are here to sort of welcome me into the, <laughs> into the family um of, of leftovers so it is a uh, quite a quite a series so uh, th- this yeah. one's going to be hard to go around so it, what's interesting is um first one thing i want to say is that it's such um a, first of all it, before I even get into that, uh, if you've never heard of The Leftovers or seen it, if you have access to HBO Max, it, it was an HBO series, so you know you it's, it's available in its entirety there. Uh, it's definitely worth watching. Um, one one disclaimer I want to give because there's a variety in the uh, temperament, I guess, of listeners that we have. Um, <laughs> me saying that it's an HBO series really ought to tell you all you need to know about thematic material that comes through that. Um, so it's an HBO series. So just know that going into it, you're going to see some weird stuff, um, probably. Uh, but but anyway, the the content of the show is, um, it's interesting because it's only like 30, 38, 
episodes or 28? 28. 28. It's not even 30 episodes. So just barely a few episodes longer than a primetime network television season. Yeah, like Lost. I think the first season of Lost was 25. 24, 25. 25. Yes, 24, yeah. 25. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were just talking about Lost earlier. Um, so fresh yeah. on the brain. But yeah, 24, 25 episodes. Mm-hmm. And that is standard. You, there had been standard for a long time right. for network series. So the entire series of The Leftovers is only a few episodes longer than one yeah. season of standard TV. Yeah. And and for, for it to have, in one sense, so few episodes for its mm-hmm. entire run, it's an incredibly dense show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turn, go ahead. Tim. I was gonna say no, and it, it's we're kind of lucky it even got that many. So apparently, uh, yeah. critics loved it, but um, it nobody watched it. And so no. the third season was almost like this. Damon Lindelof was like, "Hey, just let us finish this shit. Let us go out." And HBO was like, "Okay, here's eight episodes." It just kind of and so it's the Arrested it. Development of HBO, basically. Yeah. So I, theoretically, so it they. Like- I don't know what they had planned as far as the length number of seasons, but I know they were definitely cut. Like it was basically here's eight more for season three and that's it. So, well, and, and I can, I, I know a little bit of uh, context. Maybe I can add to that is mm-hmm. um, like at the end of season two, um, they kind of, or at least mm. the fans, I can't remember if, if Lindelof and company knew or what, but the fans kind of thought uh, considering the ratings that this might be, the end um and so actually getting the third season at least for the fans was sort of a surprise and so lindelof talked later about um about like the conversations with hbo where they came back and um hbo was willing to go on for even more seasons and lindelof said yeah oh wow well well that's awesome let, let me let me qualify that by saying lindelof or hbo didn't want to they weren't guaranteeing more seasons oh, but they okay, okay. but but they were saying like you know let's not you know box ourselves into anything mm, yeah. like this and lindelof said you know people responded so well to mm. the end of season two that he felt like less was actually going to be better mm, and that okay. you know that doing, doing it this way would allow them to you know write a true ending and that um you know, that, that it felt more like a, you know, season two felt like more like a midpoint of the mm-hmm. show. And so they, he had originally planned for more, but out of, out of basically the reaction to season two, he told HBO, no, let's, let's just end it, you know, here and do it, do it right. So, oh, okay. That's good to know. I, yeah, I, I guess just my memory, I just thought that HBO was going to cancel it anyways. And, and Lindelof will, <laughs> and we'll, we'll probably get a little deeper into each season. Um, but I think, you know, in retrospect, that was a wise decision because mm-hmm. I'm sitting here thinking, too, about uh, Lost and how this was that show ended four years before Leftovers aired. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming these were pretty much following one another. There might have been a little something in between for Lindelof. But I think that was one of the main criticisms of Lost in the long run was that it went on for too long. Yeah. And they had and they made I think they had even wanted to end it earlier after three. Yeah. After three seasons. Ironically. Yeah. Go. Ironically. Right. He wanted to and, end lost after three seasons. And yeah. they stretched them out into six. Ooh, uh, man. And yeah. And six network sized seasons. Yeah. Um, minus season four because of the writer's strike. But that was a different different time. Um, so I, I could see I could see actually quite a bit 
of Lindelof kind of learning his lessons from Lost in this show, yeah. mm-hmm. because there are so many, there are so many kind of similarities and in, in this show and Lost and in, in how the characters respond to one another. Mm-hmm. And they have the quintessential, um, I, I don't think it happened as, as, as recurringly as it did in Lost. It was a trademark in Lost. But hearing that whipping sound taking you into a flashback mm-hmm. um, was, was common here in The Leftovers. But, uh, but also, I think in, in, in all the right ways, he would often subvert expectations yeah. mm-hmm. for... Um, for for things that might have felt predictable in the moment, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, I uh, let's see, was I thinking about that? But also too, I think one thing that he did better here, and I think this is probably um, credited to the shorter seasons as well, mm-hmm. is that he didn't linger too much on uh, conflict. Um, the tension of conflict like um in, in i know we're I, I promise to our listeners that this is that every sentence i give tonight is not going to be like well it lost this happened <laughs> leftovers this happened i'll try to make this one of my last times i say it but um we were talking just before the show about you know some of the differences and, and stuff there and and the season lengths and all this other stuff um when you're dealing with a bigger bulk of episodes you have to find space to fill uh, in that stuff. And so when you have, say, two characters who have an unresolved conflict or they have become separated by geography or by something or other, that init- that inevitable re- reunion mm-hmm. um, is not dragged out and you possibly miss your emotional moment right. you know, um, to have. Yeah. So I really am enjoying, you know, the binging part of me doesn't love it so much because when it's done well, you want to see more of it. But honestly, seeing more of it kind of, you know, um, dilutes the impact. So uh, mm-hmm. that's that's, yeah. that's uh, something to consider here. Mm-hmm. The um, so yeah, let's speaking of binging. So so I am the last <laughs> of the three of us to have seen this show. Um, and uh, again, we just finished it maybe within the last month. Um, the first season of that show. For any of you who have not seen it, I, I would, I really would not rec. I, I would, <laughs> I would highly recommend responsibly binging it because it might have been one of the most depressing experiences yeah. I've ever had in watching television. And I've seen Sophie's Choice, and and many other sad things. So let let, let if, if we have uninitiated with us. Um, mm-hmm tonight let let's let's at least get into some of the the plot here so basically um like we said uh leftovers an american supernatural mystery drama television series um it it goes off of this global event that is that is referred to as the sudden departure um you know if you are familiar with christianity think of a rapture or some you know just sudden mass disappearance of a large well a, a certain portion of the population what was it like two three percent of the two two percent yeah, percent of the population just disappear, just vanish, vanish into thin air, just vanish right in front With of people. No explanation. Cars start crashing into the street. Planes fall out of the sky. You know, right. um, all this stuff. And and um, so in in that event, the first season you have is basically three years later. The opening scene 
is the event from from a character's perspective. And you see the you see the revisiting of that event, you know, multiple times throughout mm-hmm. the series uh, for different characters. Um, and the um, the the bulk of the the first season just you know picks up three three years later, you know, like like Endgame style. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're dealing with this this town, uh, Ma- Mapleton, New York. Is it New York, right? Yes. Um, the first yeah. season. So, yeah. where uh, you're following some of the characters in that town, basically, uh, mainly uh, the local sheriff, uh, played by Justin Thoreau. And um, who I think it's this is really the first time I've seen him in any kind of sustained role. I've heard his name for years, but mm-hmm. I, I must just be missing all the stuff he's doing. But he's been. Yeah, I can't remember what he was in before. I think he was actually a writer on some series before. I can't I can't remember what it was. We'd yeah. have to look it up. Um, but then people might know him um, from the casino scene in uh star wars uh the last, the last Jedi. Jedi. Yeah, yeah he's he's there so okay yeah i'm seeing him now um <laughs> interestingly enough yeah okay um I, i'm seeing he's kind of been here here and there yeah um <laughs> Basically, he's been adjacent to a lot of things I've seen or things in the same um, things in the same genre. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, so it's following him and his family and um, and a few other characters in, in, in the town. Um, he's he's pretty much a broken man, but he's just I think just and, that, and that's I feel like that's basically what the first season is about is the varying ways in which people deal with with collective grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and boy, oh boy, do they really go after all the ways. Mm-hmm. And so, um, sorry, everybody bear with me for a second, guys. I have to walk sure. away for like five seconds. So if you guys can just pick it up, I'll sure. this. so there's a dog scratching at my door. <laughs> no I, worries. Doing I know, I know Steven said he wasn't going to bring up lost again, <laughs> but I might here and there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we neither of us promised that. Yeah, we we didn't give any guarantees. And the reason I want to bring it up at this point is because I do, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about Lindelof learning some very valuable lessons um, right. from Lost. And one of those lessons I'm sure he learned was that, and I think I've said this in, in the past when we talked about the leftovers and our favorites of like two, the 2010s, but mm-hmm. I think a very valuable thing he learned was that um, n- Sometimes the questions are way cooler than the answers. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah. I think the the desire to have every question answered and lost really harmed the show. Mm-hmm. And I and some because sometimes the answers just aren't needed or aren't satisfactory. They, they're just not necessary. And I really love how in this show, the central premise, like the central mystery, there's no attempt. There's no desire. There's no thought that it's ever going to be solved. And so now you're dealing with that grief and people's kind of search for meaning instead of trying to figure out the who done it you know it, it's it's kind of like this just happened we're not going to know and i think that was a much smarter route to go yeah he he actually i don't know how much you followed um sort of the build up to the show um but the show's based off of um you know as you as you probably know uh, a book mm-hmm. um a novel by a guy named Tom Parada and Tom Parada um, was kind of co showrunner with, yeah. with Lindelof. Um, but going into the show, like you said, um, 
coming off of Lost and and all these expectations <laughs> that in the finale that they were going to answer all these Everything. unresolved <laughs> questions. Um, you know, in the in the year or so leading up to the show, Damon Lindelof was doing interviews saying, "Look, let me just tell you up front, we're probably never going to answer the central yeah. mystery here, and I'm not being." Like, you know, I'm not yeah. saying this to then come back and surprise you. Like, we are just almost certainly not going to ever address the main uh, central mystery here. So mm -hmm. just just know that going in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, you know, um, and they I think it even tried to address that once Lost ended, too, was that like, you know, our intention and mm -hmm. whether they were spinning things for the react because of the backlash or or whether they really intended this all along. They had always said they they would go back and say, well, this show has always been about its characters and not about its mysteries. Um, execution being what it is, it definitely seems like they were trying really hard to um, carve out that reality with this show. Mm -hmm. um, and that the thing that you need to be caring about is not the event of where did everybody go or how did they get there or where are they or, you know, what. Or are they coming back? It's it's mm -hmm. what are we doing with the people who are still here and like right. how are they coping and stuff? Um, but the just the entire first season is just such a an emotional weight. Um, it's just like this weight on your chest every episode and seeing how people how people go um, through what they're going through mm -hmm. and um, you know on the one hand you have some characters who are just kind of trying to, I wouldn't say live in denial of it, but just trying to move on with things. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, um, you know, people who won't stop talking about it. And then, um, then you've got, uh, Christopher Eccleston. So, yeah. um, mm -hmm. who, <laughs> um, it's funny. He was, so he's so, he's so good in this show. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm so glad that I like him because I've always wanted to like him. But if I can give a quick aside about Christopher Eccleston, the first time I really noticed him was as the villain in the film gone in 60 seconds. Mm. Um, the Nicolas Cage movie. Oh, yeah. I forgot about and that. he might be the worst Michael Bay villain type villain, <laughs> uh, of all time. Uh, which I don't blame him for because that, was just that oh gosh huh <sighs> anyways it was it was so bad and so i can never not go back to that and think of it the kind of um guilty pleasure stuff but um i remember seeing him briefly i think on the short-lived show heroes um for a while um i think he was like the invisible like an invisible man or something um and you know he was which i haven't really seen these episodes but you know he was doctor who Oh, that's yeah. right. He did do a run as Doctor yeah. Who. I haven't. I have not watched that show. Um, that that's one. That's one stamp on my geek card that it will probably remain unblemished. Um, I'm afraid. But um, the uh, yeah, he was. Uh, I think he was the cheerleader's father. No, he wasn't. That was another guy. Yeah. He was. He was in the show briefly. Okay. I just okay. remember that. But nevertheless, getting off track here. But um, his. He plays a reverend in this show, and he is um, takes a really interesting. So, so the so this show um, obviously takes some some angles here about what does it mean to people's beliefs and people's you know, and how does that how does that match up with people's existing religions? And um, he has an interesting approach. 
Um, <clears throat> I don't know that I'd call it consistent with his with his religious beliefs. He has an aggressive approach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite aggressive. So in the first season. So so um, and please correct me, guys, if I'm wrong, since I haven't really done too much homework for this one. But I think in an attempt to disprove that this was a God ordained rap, biblical rapture, he starts spreading like flyers around town of the sins and misdeeds of people who have been departed Correct. as if to say, these are not all good people. So clearly this was not mm-hmm. a God ordained event. It, it was something else, yeah. which I can appreciate his philosophy, but his technique might just be a little flawed. <laughs> yeah. He gets um, like, I, I can't remember which episode, if it's the pilot or one of the first few where, you know, he's he's preaching in church uh, to a very, you know, diminished crowd yes. because, of course, this has had a, you know, profound effect on people's spiritual beliefs. And so this guy just, you know, comes in and walks up and slugs him because just walks he, down the center aisle. And because yep. I think I think he had been, you know, putting out uh, one of those flyers had been about the guy's wife. that I don't mm. remember if she was having an affair or something, something like that. So, yeah, yeah. Man. Oof. Yeah. Mm. So, um, the, these characters get, you know, interconnected as, as they often like to do with the, with the Lindelof series. And, um, so he is the brother of Carrie Coon's character, Nora Durst, who, um, she, uh, wow. Like, um, I, I, I don't think I'd ever, this is my first exposure to her, at mm-hmm. least plant playing a human mm-hmm. being. I later found yeah. out that she played one of Thanos's soldiers in Infinity yeah. War and Endgame, which I ne- never ever would have guessed that. Right. Of course, I mean CGI and makeup. Why would I? But um, she she was in Fargo too, which I haven't seen, yes. but I've heard okay. I've heard I've heard really good stuff about really, that show. Yeah, yeah. yeah I hear that great. Highly recommended as well. Um. So you know, she is kind of known as, uh, for lack of a better term, the sort of the anomaly in the town, um, you know, just sort of bringing, uh, all the pity on the town upon herself because of all the people, cause you know, not everyone has lost someone in the town mm-hmm. cause it's mm-hmm. just 2% of the global population. Some people have, um, some people move on, some people don't. And she was married and had t- two children. Yes. Um, and lost them all. Yeah. Uh, and she's the only person really, in this, in most circles of people who have, um, who, who has experienced that. And so, you know, not only is she having to cope with that, but, but coping with the reactions of everybody else yeah. mm-hmm. and stuff. And, um, man, just, just the, the links that everyone goes to. There's one, there is one story I want to tell from an early episode that reminded me from an article I read earlier today. I'd forget completely forgotten about this, but, um, one of the things about pain and grief that people can endure is this sort of fear of letting go of it or a fear of it, of the feelings passing. Like, you know, like if you um, progress beyond it, yeah. then then it's almost like you're losing that person again. You mm-hmm. know, if you're, because all you have left of them is the pain you feel for missing them. Right. And, um, <laughs> One of Nora's ways of coping with that is hiring a prostitute to come to her house and Nora herself would put on a flak jacket 
and have the prostitute just shoot her in the in the chest and uh she'd just fall away on an air mattress or something like that but um just so she could like feel that pain for a moment again uh and it is so um so tragic and and yet there's just a tinge of like what the heck is going on here you know um which I think this show does really well. It really tiptoes that line, um, which is kind of is what grief does to you. Like, like it, um, it can draw you draw really irrational things out of you, um, to the point where if you kind of address it out loud, it's almost, it, it could potentially be almost comical and mm-hmm. how strange it is. Right. But you know, if you're internalizing all that and you're not sharing anything with anybody, then it, then yeah, it just grows into these strange, irrational proportions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, uh, yeah, she's certainly one who, who dealt with that uh, in, in a number of ways. But that was one of the first ones, obviously, that, that stuck out. Yeah, was the yeah. shoot me. <laughs> Man. Yeah, scene. <clears throat> Can I? I want to. I'm only bring this up because it is almost yeah. a complete revert. Like it's a, as far as like the depth and the like it's it's almost the opposite but i don't know why but i was watching a couple you know bits and pieces to try to catch up and i was watching the first episode and there's one scene it's a very small scene but it really just intrigued me and i wanted to bring it up <laughs> um there's a scene so the main one of the main characters kevin garvey i guess he's just at his like precinct at his office or whatever and he's like making breakfast like a bagel in one of those like toaster ovens that kind of rotates through and then it yes. falls out Again, this is tiny, but I was so fascinated. He, you know, he's making a bagel, and one of the halves of the bagels doesn't come out. And he kind of <laughs> almost loses his mind over this event. And the it's bagel like such, has departed. Yeah. And it's like such a small thing, but it kind of. Oh, I'd forgotten re- that. He kind of reinforces this idea of like, oh, yeah, 2% of the population disappeared. Like, at that point, all bets are off. Like, what? what is what could theoretically happen you know and so right. it kind of mm-hmm. emphasized in a very small moment and a very like trivial thing it's it kind of showed this like point of hey after this this big event like what is reality almost like anything could happen and i think it especially early on it did a good job of kind of showing that and i i, I just mm-hmm. it just really stuck with me after watching it At, well and i think that goes back to what um what Lindelof, one of the things he was saying that he wanted to do with the show in um, in him specifically picking that book and specifically liking the fact that it was only 2% of the world's mm-hmm. population. Because, yeah. you know, if you think about most of these types of stories, it's something way more dramatic than that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 50% or, yeah. you know, just like with Avengers Endgame or, you yeah. know, it, it's something, you know, even farther than that where it's only 2% that's left in yeah. you know, the zombie apocalypse or whatever. But he was talking about how he wanted to do a show where, you know, it's something impactful, it's 2%, but in a way that life still has to carry on mm. as wow. normal. And, and I had forgotten that scene until you mentioned it, but... That's just, you know, one of the way, you know, like you've still got to deal with these, you know, moronic, annoying little everyday problems while people are trying to not go crazy, you know, themselves. And like how you have all these coping mechanisms. And that was um, I'd I'd written down, you know, kind of one for 
a bunch of the characters and and the one you mentioned for for Nora of course is mm-hmm. is um one of the big ones for her hiring someone to shoot her but like um you know Kevin's father was the previous police chief and he completely went crazy you see uh him you know like running down the street you know naked they had to put him in a um in a care facility in an mm-hmm. asylum uh, and then Kevin, you know, then he fears that he's going crazy. He's mm-hmm. he's struggling with this. Uh, his son, Tommy, uh, joins basically what's he, this like traveling holy man type thing. It's sort of a cult, but then mm-hmm. it's not the guilty remnant, yeah. which is a cult that the wife goes off. Lori goes off to join. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got, you know, this random guy uh, in town shooting dogs. You've yeah. got... <laughs> Uh, Jill, I think it was that, um, was it Jill and her friends that were out like playing the game with the, um, freezer? Yeah. Where they locked, yeah. oh, they locked yes. somebody fridge, in the yeah. freezer, in the fridge, uh, in the middle of the forest. And then the handle breaks off mm-hmm. and, you know, gets stuck in there. So, um, so everybody, you know, it's kind of, I, I like the commentary on, on how, when one character, finds out what another character is doing it's like oh my gosh this is what are you doing this is crazy but right. then they they have some crazy thing of mm-hmm. their own yeah that they that is just completely normal to them and so that mm-hmm. kind of goes to the the coping mechanisms but then also kind of as the show goes on and and we start dealing with different beliefs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it kind of, it kind of goes into that too, but, uh, yeah, yeah the, the, that's, that's one of the most interesting parts of the show for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a really, no, I'm glad you said that. Cause I was, that made me think of, uh, the pilot episode. There's multiple quotes in the pilot episode that really get to that, that it's like, this isn't a thing that people like you talk about, like, it's just enough to be catastrophic, but also just enough not enough that the world doesn't stop turning, you know? Right. And, and that from, you know, I mean, you guys might be able to confirm this or, you know, felt it differently, but I know when, you know, when I experienced, um, you know, tremendous personal loss in my life, I think the hardest thing was coming to grips with the fact that the rest of the world just wasn't as affected by it as I was right. and everybody's still going along doing their thing. And, you know, yeah. they look at you and they pity you or, you know, they, they try to be nice, but like they, they're, it sounds so silly and it feels like some weird counseling session, but it's like, you know, you, you look at them, laugh at a joke and I'm like, you were too quick to laugh at that. You should, you shouldn't be so prone, prone mm-hmm. to happiness right now, you know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and you see that kind of resentment in some people. Um, but like uh, Kevin has a quote, I'm not going to not going to read all these verbatim because they're they're colorful. Um, but he says, you know, nobody's ready to feel better. They're ready to explode. Um, and then, you know, some of Jill's Jill's friends um, in talking about these like that's one thing like dogs have gone on like feral. Yeah. In this town. If they um, saw if they saw someone depart, it's like it drove the dog crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's interesting. Actually, uh, I'm not going to say, hey, that's grounded in science, but I will say, for for an owner of a dog with a separation anxiety, like mm-hmm. when we leave, he he does, he goes crazy, and he's fine when we come back. And I've even mm-hmm. heard this from other people too wow. that if a dog witnesses death, it actually gets over gets over with it. 
gets over it pretty quickly. Mm. Like kind of, well, which mm. like, I'm sure that's not a universal right. truth, but I've heard stories if a dog like sees somebody pass or maybe it's another dog. I don't know, but like it kind of almost like it processes it and, you know, takes time to soak it in yeah. to understand what's happened and then it's okay. Yeah. But I can under, but I could see that in this show of, um, all of a sudden, you know, people's owners are gone right. and there's no, and there's no scent to follow, right. you know, everything's completely disappeared. I could totally see that happening and just really messing with a, with an animal's psyche, especially a domesticated animal. It makes um, it, um, just a, uh, one yeah, little thing that is like, it makes me think of what, like I always thought back to the leftovers when people did that little like brief challenge where they would stand in a doorway with like a sheet or a blanket yes. and they would throw it up and then they would, you know, <laughs> like duck out of the room or something like that. Yeah. And then, and then some dogs didn't react and then some dogs are like, what the what, you know? Yeah. And then they would like run around the, you know, the okay. house, like trying to find like what just happened. So it made me think back to that. Like, uh, yeah, there could, there could really be something here with that. Trigger, yeah. Trigger your dog challenge. Yeah. yeah right. Um, right. But two, so like two of Jill's friends are talking about that, about what's happening with the dogs. And, and he just, and you know, one of them is like, well, dogs are just animals. They're not like us. They're trying, not trying to reason it all out. They see something like that and they just snap, you know, but um, they just go primal. But then he stops and he says, the same thing's happening to us. It's just taking longer. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's great. I remember that. And Gosh. no truer words wow. spoken for this show. Like, you see this slow build. You know, we were talking about the Dark Knight trilogy a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. This just slow descension into chaos. And, like, it's just a it's just a pressure build, especially in the first season. Yeah. Um, we have not talked about the, the group. So, you know, one of the things about a massive catastrophic event like this is that people are always interpreting it differently. Obviously, it sprouts out um, reactions from spiritual people, but also is the birthing of many cult-like behaviors as well. Yeah. And um, what I thought was really fun which is a weird thing to say after a sentence like that is all of the <laughs> Easter egg stuff in the background. Like whenever there was a TV on in the background and they would have a news report for something else that was happening in the world Yeah. about this, just not in their little town. So, yeah. you know, you're hearing and, and, and I, my, my, uh, my broadcasting ears have been trained for Lindelof shows to never stop, <laughs> yes. never stop paying attention to what's going on anywhere. Yeah. Right. What and, book are they uh, reading? <laughs> yeah. So, which by the way, I didn't say I saw it coming, but I knew the guy that Matt meets in season three, we were going to meet at some point. The first time I heard them talk about him on TV in the background of the scene, yeah. I'm like, Oh, that guy's going to show up. Right. At some point. But nevertheless, um, about all this. So, the, so one of the cult groups that comes out is one that's called the guilty remnant. And, um, that's, uh, it is an odd, amalgamation of cult like behaviors it's, um, it's the most maybe the most unbelievable part of the show to me that a group of people in modern time would choose not to speak because it's the complete opposite <laughs> of people just like needing to get every opinion hey, out there yeah. i read this blog <laughs> that's unsubstantiated and that makes me an expert on what yeah. happened which is funny because those people are also in the show as well but Mm-hmm. Those are yeah. kind of throw, throwaway lines meant for like like 
the one episode where Nora goes to the conference and we find somebody stole her credentials yeah. and it's really like a let's just call her a truther. I mean, you know, stands up and you know is like that they're doing this and you know wake up sheeple, you know, this, all, this oh. kind of stuff. Right. But um, yeah, the guilty remnant was a weird, frustrating plot element, and I don't know if that was by design or. I just wasn't into it. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of it um, was so, oh gosh, I feel like I'm being mean here. Guys, am I being mean mm-hmm. to say that I just, I'm not into Liv Tyler as an actress. Like I, I'm trying to think of when like I've, I've seen her in a good role where I'm like, you know what? She was perfect for that. She, you know, that was, that was excellent. Like, and, and it's not some other thing that I can blame. Like, you know, we just got done. Well, we're not completely done with the Nolan stuff yet, but we just cracked off all these Nolan episodes where I talked about how poorly written the female characters are. <laughs> and we knew that because the actresses have done so many good performances in other films. But I'm trying to think about her, and I don't want to be mean because she seems like such a lovely individual. So I don't actually want to be mean. But um, I was not interested in her arc at, like, at all, hardly. No, I wasn't in her arc either. I, I'll when when we get to it later. She has one little speech that I love. That's um, actually her last speech. But uh, yeah. But but other than that, yeah, I was not invested in her her I, character, her story of like mm-hmm. how she you know left her family and all that. I, yeah. I will say her final revelation of the sort of the grudge that she had against the rest of the world. Yeah, I thought was incredibly poignant i mm-hmm. thought that was beautifully written mm-hmm. but um and she did great with that but yeah like her whole getting into the guilty remnant the whole i mean raping a guy mm-hmm. uh same, like, all, all this is and, and i think when you take away the dialogue from these things it's it's a little harder to understand you know all the motivations and stuff and i mean so the thing is is like so, I mean, Liv Tyler, she's introduced in the series as sort of a newbie, like a like a trainee into the cult. Mm-hmm. She eventually joins up with them. But the, so the Guilty Remnant, there are all these like silent. There's mostly mostly women. It's not all women. It's not all. No, women. it's not just, all. It's a lot. Of, um, it's a lot of them are women. But yeah. um, who walk around silent, uh, taking a vow of silence. They write. Um, they communicate via notepads. Um, smoke incessantly. You know, I think it makes sense. Just you pointing that out, I'd never actually really thought about that. I just I knew the leaders of it, of course, Patty, um, yeah. and all of those were were women. But I think I don't know if they wrote this way and wrote it this way intentionally. But I think that almost kind of makes sense that it would mostly be women that that women would be like more passive in aggression as opposed to men. <laughs> um. I mean, I'm not going to respond to that. Well, but, uh, I, I'm saying this strictly from my <laughs> psychology <clears throat> background. I, I, I do have a degree in psychology. I am going to throw all um, you know, non-politically correct answers onto that. Contact Cole Hall's college. Uh, no, I'm just, um, okay. So, but but they do have they do have a purpose in the series. They they are set up. Um, in an adversarial capacity to the rest of the town. Uh, the first, is it the first episode or the second episode when they have this sort of memorial service? Um, I think it's the pilot. 
Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, where they show up to protest and like their purpose. And this is where I'm going to need y'all's help because I can't quite remember everything about them. I checked out a little bit with, with some of their stories, but their purpose is to sort of disrupt life intentionally for people to mm-hmm. make sure they, to make sure they never forget. Yeah. They call themselves uh-huh. living reminders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. um, Boy, it's weird that I would say it like that, and we're on the eve of 9/11. So I'm not going to make any correlations to to anything like that um, in term in terms of that sort of thing. But they are, uh, but they are intentionally disruptive and and sort of uh, agitators, um, like passive aggressive agitators, mm-hmm. I would say, um, to to the way of life in Mapleton, and. Um, so you see their groups start to grow. You get a little bit of the stories of a couple of the characters in there and how they were, how they were there. And, and you find out that Kevin's ex-wife, um, ends up in that and with them. Um, mm-hmm. and that, that is probably the, it was another interesting wrinkle in the story is that let's take Kevin and Nora because obviously their paths cross and, mostly at the end of the first season and into the second season and beyond. Um, but you, you have Nora on the one hand who everyone in her fam- her whole family has suddenly departed. But for Kevin, his whole family is departing from him in a whole different way. Yeah. His wife leaves him, his son, like his step stepson, um, I guess, uh, Tommy's right. he's, he's not his biological father, but he's raised um, him since birth. But, Right, basically, roughly. Yeah, um, has has abandoned him as well to go join off with this uh, one of the one of these other cults, um, and his daughter stays with him, but she is probably just as emotionally distant from him right. as everyone else, and so he he's also alone, just in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, that that to me is one of the most important themes of the show, and kind of the way I mean, Kevin is a big focus for it. And then Nora, I don't know, by the end, you know, it starts seeming like really this is more of Nora's story than anybody else's. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the big themes for the show is basically people, um, either unhappy with their families or their families are not enough for them. And they're looking to find, um, you know, meaning or purpose in, in some other way. And then, ultimately then kind of realizing that what they had, you know, especially Mm, with, with it, you know, it takes losing it for them to realize, um, what they had. And you just see that across the board with, I mean, with Kev, like you said, with Kevin and Nora's stories, Mm -hmm. they, they lost their families in, in two different ways. Um, but even with some of the side characters that we get to, um, you know, in, in Matt, who, had you know had always his wife had been in a catatonic state from a from the car wreck when the sudden departure happened so he had lost her in that way she to spoil it uh you know she eventually wakes up from that but then it's his actions that push her away Mm uh and then you know even um john you know in, in in season two where you know, his anger over his childhood and things like that push uh, the rest of the family away. And so, 
Um, yeah, to me, that's that's one of the big themes that I love in the show is just this idea of people, you know, either not being satisfied with it or doing things to push it away and then realizing afterwards what they what they had and then, you know, trying to get it back to different degrees of success. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you even look at that, too, like uh, Kevin and his father, too, like, uh, yeah, there's also a major disconnect there that, that that is baked into the beginning of the series. Like they're already um, uh, apart from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's just uh, it makes a really a really interesting um, thing. And, and the show, I will say, for all of the for all the strange decisions and all the character quirks and stuff makes for some really powerful. um, uh, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, but like climactic moments. Mm. Um, We look in the, you know, there, there's this massive, so the, the the tension between the townspeople and the guilty remnant basically just comes to a head at the end of the first season. Um, resulting in a lot of chaos yeah. uh, in town, and um, Kevin ends up. And Kevin ends up. Uh, I wouldn't say reconnecting, but he ends up having to confront. Uh, gosh, what's her name? What's his wife's ex-wife's name? Oh. Lori. Lori. Yeah, thank you. Um, connecting with Lori, and like, um, there's a there's a moment like a grave danger for their daughter, and that forces her to speak finally like and it's mm. and it's just moments like that um I, i've seen you know the sort of silent by choice character taken to their breaking point in other films before uh too but like you know just seeing moments like that is is just so so powerful and um and then you know it just kind of comes to a head uh and so yeah it, i will say if you're watching the uh you know if you're watching the show for the first time i would say probably after the first maybe what three four episodes it really starts to get to get rolling um beyond beyond just the emotional weight of it all right. uh, you kind of see things start to take shape um and and i should also say too that um <laughs> the opening theme it, <laughs> yeah for season one <laughs> is just so like, like the, first of all, the, the visualization mm-hmm. of the opening credits is like this really depressing Sistine chapel looking creation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the music is beautiful and haunting at the same time. You can hear it, you know, wherever you stream music, it's easy to find. Um, and there's also, I will say too, though, uh, there's a really heartbreaking piece of music. I wish I had looked it up. I kind of want to do that now while I'm thinking about it. That makes a few appearances um, throughout the series. Um, yeah. It usually, usually at like emotional release moments, yeah. not at like really crazy moments, but it sounds almost like a variation of Coldplay's "Fix You." Mm. Um, I, know, yeah. I think. It, I think maybe it's called maybe maybe the one that's called departure. I'm looking at the uh, season one thing. I'm actually I'm just gonna. Uh, if it's the same one, I, I will say I, it, it's been years, of course, since until preparing for this episode that I watched the show and just hearing that sort of piano, I'd almost it almost brought me to tears again. Like it was, it really took me back. <laughs> 
Yeah, the the you know the main theme is crazy heavy. Yeah, the the departure is is not the one I'm thinking about, but is also a really heavy one. That is like uh, it's this is going to sound crazy, but uh, and I don't I'm, I'm probably talking about only something I've experienced. But um, there used to be a game. There was a video game on the PlayStation Three years ago called Heavy Rain. Um, I've heard of it. That it play it's it's not so much a game as almost like an interactive film. Mm. I mean, because because yeah. there's no real platforming intuition involved. It's basically a series of press this button now and press that button now, mm. and you're actually just walking your way through the story that way. Yeah. It's no, um, and uh, some people hate that, but actually it was such an engaging story, and and the music from the departure really reminds me of that because that also that game also deals with loss. Uh, loss of family and trying to to get through that but um i'm trying to think i'm totally just making my way through the season one soundtrack over here i'm like you're trying trying to find out what <laughs> no this worries. Is just just, a, just a, while you're doing that just as a little aside like um one thing i love about the leftovers and that is, that is so interesting and violates like basically the first rule of uh storytelling of show don't tell Mm -hmm. is that so much of this show is just about close-ups on people during these really intense emotional moments Mm -hmm. you know they're you're not uh I, i mean it's kind of illustrated in um i think the last uh scene of the series with you know with nora telling her story almost any other show would give you the um, images of, mm. you know, what she's, she's talking about. Uh, yeah. But the, le- the leftovers just like sits on two characters and it, and it works perfectly. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I wish more shows would actually do that uh, mm-hmm. because I think it works well for me. Maybe it wouldn't work. Um, in other shows, but, uh, that's, that's something that I always found interesting about it. Yeah. I'm going to say it's probably likely that most shows don't do that too, because they're no disrespect to other shows, but their cast probably doesn't have the chops. Yeah. To do right. <laughs> right. They're not, um, Carrie Coon is not in their cast. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, right. okay. So now's probably as pretty good a time as ever to transition into season two. Because sure. there is like a moment of moments with what we just described oh, in season two. Um, season two, first of all, so anecdote time again from Stephen's house. Um, no one told me um, that season two moves to a whole nother state <laughs> um, in America <laughs> and focuses the first, at least I'd say the first uh, 45 to 50 minutes of the 60 minute episode on characters you've never met before. Right. I'm like, it was very like, this is us. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, why is Eddie Winslow on my TV right now from family matters? Like, are we, and and before that even, and season two also has a completely different theme song and completely different opening credits. And Mm -hmm. when you are binging this and -hmm. you have just gotten through of the, like, like if if season one was a sandwich, it would be like one of those Arby's sandwiches that has like 
18 different meats in it that's it's like so heavy and then all of a sudden it's oh like it's, almost, it's all of a sudden like you, you have kale in front of you like it's just so light it's, it's just and like you hear this yeah. like sweet little folksy oh, acoustic it's like yeah. it's like it's like oh shucks there was a rapture like kind of yeah. kind of thing and i'm like what is what's happening is it is, look, it is it a banjo that they're playing in yeah, that? What, what are they playing? maybe I think it's something like a banjo or a mandolin or acoustic guitar. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very it's very rural sounding. Yeah, uh, it's it, not it's not you know that you get from the wah. season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like um, it's the, almost the crazier thing than the fact that it changes so abruptly. It's just that it works. Like it 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 fits the show. Yeah, even it's not even the tone not, of that season. Yeah. And not even like, yeah, it's just, it just, it fits in the sense of just who knows what's going to, like the random, it's just, yeah. Oh, some, I just adored it. It was so My good. wife and I looked at each other and she was like, did you click on the wrong show? I, I think maybe the first time, like when season two premiered, I was like with my remote, yeah. like checking to make sure that this was the right show. Cause that's a guide. The leftovers are supposed <laughs> yeah. to be on right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. Look at it. Looking at the guide. And like you said, with a different cast, but you know what that reminds me of that song It was like, it this is just a random association. It's almost like, um, like it, it would belong on like a Nickelodeon camp show, like a Nickelodeon show about yes. a camp, like um, Camp Anawana. Do you remember whatever that yeah. show was? Do you remember that one? <laughs> like that could have been the opening theme song for camp, whatever. I don't know if the, the name of the show was Camp Anawana. Anyway, that's the association I get with that. Yeah. That's amazing. I love it. <laughs> so, so we moved to season two. And season two takes us to Jarden, Texas. And you find out soon-ish, you know, uh, within the first episode of season two, that we are now looking into a town that had zero departures. Yep. And they have, not necessarily everyone in the town, but it has become like a tourist attraction. It is an overly spiritualized place. Um, and listen, I am a... I'm definitely a person who believes in um, things happening for a reason. And I, you know, I believe in God, I believe in, in, in ordaining our steps and, and these kinds of things. However, like people's, you know, you, you just watched season one get just like take you through the grinder mm-hmm. of people of, of both innocent and guilty people being judged, so to speak. I mean, we don't know what happened. Um, but clearly like there's not some sort of thing. And what was so fascinating to me is, is how they just drop you in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you slowly start to see that um, <clears throat> everyone who was doing some sort of weird out of the ordinary thing is now like a pro baseball player and developed a level of superstition that is beyond, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what, like, like, you know, they're just a man will just walk up into a diner with a tarp and slaughter a goat in front of everybody and walk out. Um, this this one girl was trying on wedding dresses, so she does it every day now. You know, just yeah. all kinds of all kinds of crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we are after that introduced to uh, the Murphy family which uh is just such an interesting an interesting dynamic like i almost i kind of wanted to see more of them yeah um as a fan which which i wouldn't say you know they were necessarily underserved but 
but um, they were really, really interesting. And um, so the great, uh, the great, great, great Regina King um, plays the mother. And um, she, uh, there's her and her husband, John, and then they're, uh, they're, they're two kids, um, Evie and what's the boy's name? Kevin? Is that right? No, I don't think or it's Kevin. Do I have that reversed? Um, I don't think it's Kevin. I can't remember his um, name off the top of my head, though. Adepo. Jovan Adepo is the actor, I think. Um, I think who plays him, if I'm remembering that right. Anyway, but uh, yeah, it's a... Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting family. And then you find that, you know, by the end of the episode, that characters from season one have, have moved into town. Um, but this is also now, um, this, uh, this, uh, almost a uh, border patrol, uh, town. Like, you know, there are refugees camping out wanting their opportunity to sort of live in the promised land. Um, kind of thing. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a, there's a whole lot going on there. Um, people trying to get in and then they, um, you know, sort of posing themselves, um, you know, posturing themselves versus the people outside of the town. And, um, this, it, oh man, yeah, there's, there's some, season two is, is, is an interesting place. I'll, I'll say that there's mm-hmm. a whole lot that goes down and it's hard to kind of get into all that, but we'll try. Well, and, <laughs> and just, just to, to, um, go back to one last point about, about season one that I wanted to mention was I think part of like, like the big climactic thing from season one. And, and I'm sure part of what eventually prompts them to end up leaving Mapleton is, um, the guilty remnant does this horrific thing where they take they take dummies uh mannequins and they dress them up in wigs and clothes of the um people who departed and they like break into these people's homes and put them in their homes so uh, nora comes down you know one morning and finds you know the mannequin of her husband and her her two kids sitting at the breakfast table where they departed. Um, And so then that sparks just this where people just go nuts and just go to the little subdivision where the guilty remnant lives. They burn all their houses down. And, you know, you have to assume assume that since it wasn't just a localized um, little cult sort of thing, it was spread across, I guess, in different little factions, I think maybe I can't remember for sure, but that, but this probably happened in multiple places and so, um, you know, I know they're, they're sitting, uh, they, they show, I think the scene later, or I remember it from the trailer where, you know, some time's passed and Kevin and Nora and Jill are, are sitting in a restaurant and he says, you know, you guys want to get out of here? And they're like out of the restaurant. And he's like, no, not, not the restaurant. <laughs> so basically they're just trying to get to, you mm-hmm. know, a, a safe place from this crazy world, which by the way, not just because we're talking about it, but because of everything else that's happened, nothing feels more like 2020 to me in terms of fiction than 
the leftovers because <laughs> like like it started when we were like when when covid was happening at, at the beginning and we were dealing with like a four percent five percent uh death rate you know mm-hmm. i'm thinking that was immediately what i thought back to was was the leftovers where like what if you know yeah one percent two percent of the population dies and 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 of course all the other you know, crazy things that are um, coming out of 2020 but uh yeah anyway yeah i just wanted to mention that before we went on to season two because that was such a like crazy uh crazy scene yeah it was um oh gosh i know just the and you know the the show does such a good job of investing you in the pain of everyone Mm-hmm. that even like even the characters that you don't necessarily agree with or that you don't that you prefer you know, that you don't like or whatever you you sort of walk in the empathy of their loss though you know yeah. mm-hmm. um and so when they come out and do that with the mannequins and stuff you're just like what a great you know it was like a this great scapegoat uniting of all these people, you know, and their loss, um, against this group. And it's just, uh, Oh gosh, it just, it just makes you so angry to see like, why can't you just let people deal with this? You know? Um, yeah. and it's just so, so ridiculous and, and just infuriating and man, just crazy. So, um, we had alluded to this a few, you, Jared, you were talking about sort of the, don't show but tell um so naturally there the this giant you know uh, catastrophic global event breeds bureaucracy um they have some sort of financial government based you know financial reimbursement programs for people who had lost things and that includes you know interviewing people for you know pretty, pretty rigorous interview questions and stuff. And, um, as it turns out, Nora, who had lost her entire family goes to work for that department. And one of her jobs in season one is to go interview people to determine if they are eligible or if they can sort of determine if these people are lying and somebody faked their death or something and mm-hmm. versus, you know, an actual departure. And, Early on in season two, once Kevin and Nora and Jill um, come to town in Jarden, um, an event happens that suggests a departure has happened again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously, you know, they kind of get looked at as <laughs> kind of the curse that comes to town. <laughs> um but they are next door neighbors to, to the Murphys. And so there is this scene where they're trying to, you know, like they're trying to be trying, trying to ingratiate themselves to their neighbors and trying to find, you know, how do you find normalcy, you know, you know, yeah. in life at this point and where we should even mention that like Kevin's been hallucinating at this point <laughs> um, too and stuff and, and, and all this crazy stuff is happening. And so Nora goes to sit down with Erica, Regina King's character to help her with the possible disappearance of the possible departure of her daughter, Evie. And so she's like, 
what I can do is like, you know, it was my job. She basically just puts all her cards on the table. It was my job to do this. Uh, I used to ask people and and it's like, so I think the, I think the thing was somebody from that government office was going to come and interview her. And so she comes over ahead of them to try to prep her. So she knows what to expect. It's sort of an act of love. So she's not taken aback by the invasiveness of some of the questions and stuff. And so they have, I'd love to go back and watch this scene because obviously it's been months since I've seen it, but this should be enough that it felt like neither of them blinked in that scene. Right. It was that intense because, you know, um, Erica had just lost her daughter and Nora has lost her whole family. And the nature of their conversation while civil is so tense Mm -hmm. that there's all this subtext of um, Erica kind of saying, kind of suggesting to Nora, like there's nothing you could do to save your family, like nothing you could have done to prevent it. While Nora is almost kind of suggesting, well, maybe there was something about you that made your daughter leave. And like, man, it was such a, such a powerful scene. And, um, just, just an amazing exchange. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, again, that, that's another, one of my favorite things about this show is people like seeing the things that for lack of a, a better word, uh, or less partisan word that trigger people. Sure. Um, but you know, there's, there's, I had, I had kind of forgotten that, that conversation because when I went back and, you know, it's been, you know, five years or so since I've seen most of this, but I was able to go back and watch, you know, bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was sort of a mirror to that conversation, I guess, was the conversation between Kevin and John. Um, yeah. Kevin and John in the, in the season finale of that episode where oh, um, I actually wrote that down uh, a few lines of that, where, um, they're standing there. And so the setup for this is, um, John found, um, Kevin's print, uh, his prints on the car on his daughter's car, uh, from the night where they disappeared. Kevin was coincidentally out in the same area trying to commit suicide. Um, so that's the setup. And so now, but of course, because the print is on there, he thinks it's, um, has something to do with, you know, that Kevin may have had something to do with it anyway. So they're in, in, in this building by themselves. Um, and so John says, you know, he's trying to figure this out after Kevin, uh, tells him that he saw his daughter, you know, with bags, you know, packed and, and leaving, obviously faking her, her disappearance. And so John just can't deal with this, you know? And so he says, you know, Evie loved her mother, her brother and me. So why would she do this to us? And Kevin says, I don't know. John tells him to take a, take a guess. And then, so then Kevin says, maybe, maybe she didn't. And <sighs> John's like, what? And he says, loves you, love you. Maybe she, maybe she didn't love you. Who knows what goes through people's head. And then, 
and then as he's like, you know, just sort of like Kevin's just kind of riffing at this point, like, yeah, you never know what goes with people's head. And then and then John is like, no, he literally pulls out a gun and shoots him in the chest. Um, and I, I thought that was, oh, gosh, it's just yeah. like, yeah, moments like that that really make this show for me, because it's it's these triggers that I see, like with people where you know we we seem to be getting in in a world where people have such radically different beliefs now and so i think we're all kind of like stepping on each other's beliefs whereas in in years past i mean if you go into like 1800s america in a small town i think you're going to find a lot of you know more similar uh, beliefs and things like that mm-hmm. um but but just to be able to see like all these moments where characters like core critical beliefs are confronted and how that can just turn into um, just catastrophic uh, results is, is one of the great parts of this show for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And huh, I don't even know if I want to dig into this or not, but I don't know how to talk about this show without doing it. So you mentioned Kevin getting shot. There is an unusual um, story arc surrounding Kevin in this series. On the surface level, it seems that he has the ability the ability to resurrect from the dead. Perhaps we can talk more about that at the end of the episode um, with with things. But the way they handle this, it's like, so so we should mention. Um, in, in season one where Patty dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. Kevin runs afoul of the guilty remnant early, you know, in season one, many times cause he's the sheriff of the town and they are the biggest problem. Um, well through a set of circumstances, he ends up, um, with one of the, one of their leaders dead. Um, which he tries to prevent her from killing herself, but he's unsuccessful. Um, and from that point on, he's haunted by her ghost, um, which I have to admit is pretty entertaining. Um, once she actually comes back to pester him, um, their exchanges are, are provide some lev- some weird levity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he's finally wanting to be rid of her. And so, through a series of events, he's convinced by another character that he has to die and then, for lack of a better description, kill her in the afterlife right? in order to be able to be free of her and then he can come back. And the visualization of Kevin being either in purgatory, the afterlife, whatever to call it, is this like this weird like godfather slash james bond <laughs> mm-hmm. fantasy scenario yes. which is highly entertaining yes um i did not know what to make of it in the beginning um and it's such a strange visual of him like waking up like drowning in a hotel bathtub completely naked and then falling out of it and it's funny because it's so jarring and memorable the first time you see it that when it happens again without 
without pretext. Mm-hmm. Um, and the show, you're like, oh, Kevin's died again. Yeah. He's in the thing. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, well, this is where he is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is just so strange. Um, but he... Um, that was another what? scene that I wrote down too, but just because, just because where he, he, uh, comes out of there and, and it plays this like opera music, you mm-hmm. know, it's like this opera music and then him taking a look around, uh, let's see. Oh crap. Where was this at? Oh yeah. Um, and immediately like he gets so angry in a comical way where he's like mother I am not <laughs> doing this again. You yeah. Know? It, it, I cracked up at that scene like the second time. Yes, it was. It was. Oh man. So I bring, I bring that up particularly though for Kevin's, uh, for the moment where uh, Kevin is shot by, uh, by Murphy there. Um, because he is confused at this point because he wakes up in this place and he knew he had a purpose when he went down there the first time, but now he's afraid because he doesn't know how to come back. And this is the, I I gotta say, I, I thought they were going to lose me at this point. Um, with this show when he goes and meets sort of the hotel concierge, so to speak, I don't know what else to call him. Um, Satan. I don't know. Um, (laughs) anyway, or, or Gabriel or St. Peter. I don't know. Um, and he goes down to the hotel bar, um, and it's a karaoke night Mm. down there. And he's like, I've already done what I came here to do. So like, how do I get out now? Like, I don't know what to do. He goes, well, you could spin the karaoke wheel and try to sing your way out. And I'm like, first I just thought it was a punchline, right? You know, because it's ridiculous. Um, and then he keeps saying it. He's like, no, that's, that's how you get out. And it's all these like, which a fun Easter egg, by the way, is to go back and watch that scene and look at the entire wheel of songs that are on there that have to do with like eternity and death and life and stuff. It's actually like living on a prayer by Bon Jovi is on there. Um, you know, all this other kind of stuff. So anyway, but he picks, he, he finally decides to do it and he goes, and he sings uh, Homeward Bound by Simon mm-hmm. and Garfunkel. And when I um, I have a habit now in my older age that I like to watch all my content with subtitles on for fear of mishearing something or mm-hmm. appreciating a deeper subtext so I can actually see what's being said mm-hmm. in addition to hearing it. And so seeing the lyrics of that come up and being able to read it while I'm hearing it it's almost as if Damon Lindelof heard that song one day before he created this show mm-hmm. and was like, I'm going to build an entire story arc around this song. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. um, it, it reminded, was, I'll, I'll go back to lost again since, so you don't have to there, but it reminded right. me of like certain, um, songs he would use in, um, <laughs> it, at the beginning of episode or beginning of seasons, you know, like at the, at the beginning of season, um, two it's make your own kind of music yeah, at the beginning yeah. of season yeah. three it's downtown mm-hmm. um it, it kind of this is obviously in a more a more a much more profound sort of moment but um yeah i think i think he likes to do that because there's actually there's another one where he he does that with a metallica song in the scene where Lori, um where we see the flashback of Lori counseling that woman who was in the the premiere? Um, yes, he, he does that same thing with with that song too. Anyway, mm-hmm. 
And the um, the beauty in that song is that you kind of come to discover that um, what gets him out is accepting that he needs his family. Hmm. And it's that moment that Jared talked about earlier is the people not realizing what they have until, until it's gone or until it's not with it. And then Justin Thoreau played that scene mm-hmm. beautifully, yeah. masterfully. Like the moment as someone who's been without their family for an indiscriminate amount of time, knowing that you don't have them and not being sure when they're coming back and just like any thinking you could give anything to ensure that that moment is coming. Mm-hmm. He played that out like someone who had like, no, of mm. course no one, no one has been in an eternal karaoke bar before, but <laughs> like he has played it like someone who has been there before, you know? Yeah. And it's, yeah. uh, it was really just, uh, just really crazy. Um, it was just, uh, crazy in the best way possible not not this other other kinds of crazy in this show it's like crazy in the in the super superlative kind of way i just i chalk it up to like let it off's ability to put you in this crazy yeah insane situation but because of the back you know you know the character you know what like everything surrounding it is unbelievable and it's like Mm -hmm. if you were to just be dropped into that one scene you'd be like this is nuts what's going on but because of all the breadth and the depth and everything you it's so moving but it's such a we it's it's this weird juxtaposition of so odd yet so powerful i i love it i love it yeah it's like even even having seen the show myself like as we're talking about it out loud i'm like this this isn't a show what i would ever watch no yeah. this sounds yeah. terrible <laughs> yes. yeah it's it has to be experienced really it really does yeah yeah um the and I got to say, I'm not, we'll get into season three here in a minute, but um, the way season two ends, hmm. I thought like when you told me, Jared, after I was in it, you were telling me about, you know, the sort of the discussions and stuff. I got to wonder if they just weren't sure that HBO was going to pull the trigger at that point, because it was written. That could have been a great finale. Yeah. I think so. I think they weren't sure. I don't remember specifically what they said about it. I know the fans and like entertainment uh, sites, magazines, all that type of stuff thought like this is probably it. It's probably not coming back for a third season. But yeah, when you couple that with the way it was written and honestly, like, I mean, I love this. I love season three and I'm glad we got that. And I I liked the way they wrapped it up. Um, But season two was my favorite finale and if they had left it there i would have been perfectly fine with that and yeah lindelof said you know so much of his decision to end it with season three was just based on how much people loved uh the second season finale and he said something to the effect of you know i think if we keep going back to the well um people are going to kind of figure out the little formula, basically something to that effect. And when he said that, I, I thought, you know, I, I think I just can pretty well guess how, how the show roughly is going to end is just, you know, the way the first two seasons have ended of, of ultimately it's people finding their way back to each other, you know, yeah. however, whatever set of people we, and of course it ends up, you know, being specifically those two characters. But yeah, um, yeah I, 
it could have it, it was just it was great the season two finale was great mm-hmm. yeah so uh, and i should say one more thing about season two um which is perfect strangers um yes. so yes. there um i <laughs> i can remember in the early 2000s when lost was still on and youtube was still kind of in its infancy of popularity Someone had sent me, Jared, it might have even have been you. I don't know. Someone had created this mashup video of two characters, uh, Jack and Locke, and interspersed shots from Lost to the Perfect Strangers theme song. And they like re they like recut the openings, the opening credits to Perfect Strangers with Jack and Locke. Um, which was really funny. Um and there are Easter eggs throughout the season that like the entire cast of perfect strangers departed. Um, and then, then there was an expose that cousin Larry from perfect strangers, Mark Lynn Baker had been spotted in Mexico Mm -hmm. and he had faked his departure and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere in season, season two or season three, I can't remember. Three. Three. Because season three was the season that had different theme songs for every episode. Um, all of a sudden, the Perfect Strangers theme song is the is is the opening credits for for one of the episodes, and um, Nora ends up meeting Mark Lynn Baker, where he ends up <laughs> telling her about this device that could potentially send her to where the Departed are, and and stuff. And it's uh, anyway, it is a. Uh, so so that, yeah that's another thing i love about this show is i feel like the first time you hear about perfect strangers it's kind of like this throwaway yeah thing and just the beauty of the show it somehow finds its way you know they use that one little nugget one little thing to to create kind of this whole other plot in season three i just I, they did that and I, I can't remember seeing that a couple other times so now I, my mind is blanking i don't remember what those were but just being impressed by yeah something small offhand at one point becoming this big plot later on yeah. it was a great joke payoff yeah i'll, yeah. I'll say that for, for those <laughs> who were into it um all right so so i gotta say uh season three so it's only eight episodes long mm-hmm. um which is probably for the best um mm-hmm. so I, I gotta say though this one was really hit or miss for me like mm-hmm. I, I think i was so spent after the first two seasons and of course binging them as well um a lot of emotional buildup and, and release, uh, and that, and I don't know, it just all seemed a little extra. Uh, there were a few really cool moments. Um, you know, there, there's a real interesting episode. It's a weird, it's, it may be one of the weird, I'd saying a lot, maybe one of the weirdest episodes of the series, but it, but it is uh, featuring an interaction between Matt and this guy who claims to be God, Mm, yeah. which is a really interesting uh the the, the surrounding context is weird yes uh, yes <laughs> um but also i feel like it, it, that episode was strangely vindicating for matt too though you know yeah mm-hmm. uh in a weird way and that's where it kind of comes back to to matt to me as a character one thing i really enjoyed is that he has a really interesting he's he's all the characters are flawed of course mm. um but he has a really 
a really well fleshed out um, disposition of faith in this show. Yes. Um, you know, he's Lindelof's tried that before, I think with Locke, you know, and lost yeah. and I uh, really gravitated towards it then. And, but here, like, he is so convinced, like even in season two, like he had the hardest time convincing people that his wife, so, so he had told everybody that his wife had woken up for one day, like, uh, and then gone back into her catatonic state mm-hmm. and, and, you know, everybody's like, yeah, okay, Matt. You know? Yeah. Well, and not, um, not even for a day, just like overnight for like, yeah. she woke up in the middle of the night and then, you know, for a matter of hours. So yeah. there's no opportunity for anyone else really to, to you know, write story or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. And so, you know, you see him making these sort of grandiose um, gestures, statements, and like you're introduced to him, like his his church is going to go into foreclosure. And so he goes to like Atlantic City to try to went to bet all his money on on buying the buying them out of foreclosure and he just sees like a dove land on a certain roulette table and he's like i'm going to that table and i'm doing mm-hmm. and this is the interesting thing about faith in this show is that he looks like a fool almost right. all the time right and he always almost always gets vindicated And I think that is just that's the thing about that. I think that's the really clever thing that Lindelof does with faith in this show is that it because that's what faith really does is you have to be willing to look foolish because that's the very essence of faith is putting your hope in something that can't really be quantified the way that we like to comfortably quantify things in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm just so encouraged by the fact that they didn't just allow him to sit there in his foolishness and allow the show to kind of indict him on that. They didn't make him better than everybody else, but when he was truly thought he was doing the right thing and it didn't mean he didn't have to suffer to get there, he wasn't wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, about, about the things that meant the most to him. Um, and, and, um, that could in lesser hands, of showrunners and writers, I think it would have been very easy to cast that aside as him being misguided or delusional or whatever. But really faith is not the kind of thing where like, I trust God to give me a $65 million Learjet and it's going to happen. You know, it's, it is the, it is the, I am going to suffer possibly. I'm going to suffer through life to get to the other side, but I'm going to get to the other side, even though no one, everyone around me thinks that I'm a fool for going through this suffering because I'm in pain right now. But nevertheless, the other side comes and, and I, and I, and I love that about his arc, um, which on kind of a funny note, he never bought into this man claiming he was God. Um, and that man ends up getting eaten by a lion at the end of the episode, which <laughs> I found to be mm, just the chef's kiss. Exactly, the, the chef's kiss. <laughs> yes. Cherry on top. Righteous uh, vindication. Yeah. Um, because because and I think Lindelof in particular, I'm just giving him the credit. It could be another writer, I suppose. But um, does it does the great job of, of taking you to the brink of faith, but doesn't strip it away from you. Um, that's a very hard thing to do. Yeah without it seeming cheap or trite um, or 
you know, cynical. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's, uh, and he kind of takes you through all that, but he brings you back. Um, yeah. and I think that's, that's, that, that was something uh, that was a thing about season three that I did really like. And, um, having just eight episodes of the season, I think it was worth it just, just for that. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. for the very ends, which I know we'll Oof. get to. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. the way he grapple, you grapple with, there's that line between, you know, faith and doubt, the supernatural and not. And he, he kind of honors both by it's, it's in some ways it could seem like a very that it is you know happening for a reason but then in other ways it you could see it, you could kind of go both ways about it and i like how he kind of honors both and or puts you in there where you kind of really have to grapple with it and really question and not it's not an easy answer and i, I think yeah I, I like the way he he really makes you wrestle with that yeah that that's another one of the, the points i wrote down or you know the themes of the show was what they do with faith and how, and especially with us coming from, um, you know, a, a, a Christian college where, um, you know, it's very, people have very strong opinions about what's meant to be or yeah. what isn't. And the people within this show, uh, especially Matt, you know, have very strong opinions about, you know, what is meant to be. And, um, I mean, you know, not just Matt, but like, you know, with with things like uh, Nora finding Lily, you know, and so how easy mm-hmm. it is to read into that, that like, OK, this is meant to be, you know, uh, the child that you, you were meant to find this child. And this is meant to be that, you know, the child you raise and it, you know, it doesn't turn out that way. And so many things with Matt, like that episode where he goes to the casino, where you're, you you keep waiting. You you keep waiting for something to derail this because there's so many you know opportunities. There's so where, many red flags. Like I can't even. <laughs> yeah, like I can't even remember them all. But you know, you're just thinking he's going to lose his money, and mm-hmm. then he he's he's going to get robbed, and and all these different things. Um, and there's no way it's going to work out to you know for him to get the money back to save his church, and and it goes through all this, and he and he almost makes it into clear but then at the last second you know it's like he he doesn't make the the deadline or whatever well it's like a double Um, swerve like he does get mugged and then you're like oh no and then he just like rockies himself up yeah and goes and beats the brakes off of the robber and takes the money back and you're like okay but unfortunately he's been beaten to the point of being unconscious and like said he wakes up three days after his due date even though he had the money as just uh and of course a stupid guilty remnant Right. And so then that just kind of leads into, um, you know, season three of the bigger arc of, um, you know, it's the anniversary of the sudden departure. And then Matt now believes something big's going to happen. A lot of people believe because it's the seventh anniversary and seven is, uh, you know, a biblical number that that something is going to is going to happen out of this. And the lengths that they go to in order to sort of validate that belief um I I like the commentary on how this could be, there could be parts of this that are meant to be and parts of this that are being orchestrated, but don't be arrogant enough to believe that, you know, like what all this is leading to or what this Mm -hmm. is supposed to lead to, you know? Yeah. It's, it got very left behindy. Um, in in that such not the quality of the leftovers, but in the actions of the characters, yeah. And in, in, in the sense that like, you know, um, at this point, Matt and then John's son, 
My, Michael? Michael. I, I, I looked it yeah. up. Yeah. It was a biblical name. I know that because they had that <laughs> joke on the boat about all those guys having Matthew and Michael and, um, you know, having <laughs> all these biblical names. And um, they, um, they begin writing like a holy scripture about yeah. Kevin. And it ends up, you know, getting kind of out of their hands and creating some really irrational behavior amongst people. So I will say like the whole Australia arc story arc uh, did, did, did not really do it for me. Like the thing with Kevin and his dad and this mm-hmm. random lady in Australia. Although again, it's the power in, in the little stories of this show mm-hmm. is the little, is the, is the million little anecdotes they came up with for how people lost somebody. Yeah. And like, there's a story of one lady out there in Australia who had children had like three or four children or something. And she had gone, she had left the house for, for an errand or something mm-hmm. like that. When the departure happened, her children didn't know that she had left and thought she had departed and wandered out into the Australian outpack and, and died. Yeah. And she had lost all her children, but it wasn't the departure. And right. it's, it's just, just awful things. And, oh, man. um, and I'm trying to remember, like, is this the, oh yeah. Okay. Listen, all the steps of getting there, I guess were, were a lot to take in and a lot mm-hmm. to kind of put up with, but they have this moment where they think that if Kevin willingly, you know, very Jesus-y, Kevin willingly dies a third time, um, that it will prevent whatever catastrophic event is coming. Right. Uh, a flood supposed to be a flood. Um, and there's an interesting moment here where, and I, I don't know how I feel about this, but I thought it was really good though. In that right, right before he goes to die, the people that are helping him are like, Hey, if you see this loved one of mine, can you, can you ask them why they weren't wearing shoes or yeah. can you ask it, you know, these, these, all these little things and he gets there and goes to do it. And he does ask and he gets all of these sort of innocuous answers for things, which takes me actually back to season two. I think the one thing I said about Liv Tyler uh, and her performance was that I thought it was a phenomenal storytelling decision that her grief was not actually attached to the departure. Mm, Her mother died. Her mother Mm. dies the day before the departure happens. Yeah. And so no one mourns her because it'd be like, I mean, we're sitting here recording this on September 10th right now. It'd be like if some massive event, you know, happens before a catastrophic global event Mm -hmm. and nobody remembers your, your tragedy, but that doesn't make her grief any less real. And so there's nobody to help her carry that. And that's really tragic. Um, And so, you know, in this, she goes to speak to, um, I don't know the right term right now because I'm having a fuzzy time remembering it, but let's just say a fortune teller. Um, I think it's Eddie Winslow, right? I think it's when she goes to see, see him um, when he's, he's in Jarden Cause she goes to Jarden like before, right. Before the story arc actually goes, goes down there to go see this sort of psychic um, to find out about her mom. 
Um, and like what she was, cause she was going to tell her something. Oh, that's what it was. So she, oh, she's yeah. like, Hey, there's something I want to tell you. And she's like, Hey, I just, I really have to go to the bathroom. And so she gets up and goes to the bathroom When she comes back. She's dead. Yeah. And she's like obsessed over this thing. And he has this really poignant thing to tell her, which is like, I could tell you what she's going to say, but you have to understand like the moment before when people don't know that they're going to die. Right. They're not necessarily going to tell you anything earth shatteringly important. Right. You know, most, most of these things are just very general. And like, do you basically like, do you really want to know? Cause I, I go ahead and tell you, no matter what I tell you, you're not going to be satisfied with it because, because right. the truth isn't going to satisfy you in those moments. And I think that's an, I don't know what I want to do with that, but I think there is something we, we, we do a lot of death and a lot of tragedy doesn't have a glamorous movie like end to it. Right. Um, you know, we, we do, when we lose somebody, we do remember things that are important. Um, if we're lucky, we have an opportunity to have last words with somebody and maybe you can pull some meaning out of that. But as for like the sort of spontaneous tragedies that happen, a lot of times it is like, Oh, did you see America's got talent last yes, night or something, right, you know, right. Just something silly like that. And, and, uh, you know, there, there is, I, I, again, I don't really know what to do with that, but it is a, uh, it's a, it's a real, um, it's, I thought that was, that was a good in, in this series about how people cope with loss and grief and stuff. Um, that was a real valuable thing, I think, to include, mm-hmm. um, as far as that goes. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly what to do with that either, but yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, do we have, so, so the only thing left I want to talk about is the ending of the show, like the ending of the series. Um, as far as what I got. So if there's anything we want to clean up, speak now or, you know, forever, let the mystery be. Sure. Yeah. I've got (laughs) Tim. I don't know if you've got anything you want to go with, but I've got a a few things I want to mention. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah. So one thing I did love about, um, about her character was, uh, I mean, not that this was that, that great, but, um, the tiger speech, uh, before, before the, the drone attack where basically, I don't know if you remember, but her at the beginning of season three, um, Meg and Evie are in the visitor center after they've just come in and wrecked, you know, uh, Jarden. And so she starts reciting this, you know, you're like, what is she talking about? But she's talking about, but as they're like drilling the hole in to see where they are, put the camera in, the feds are uh, wanting to see what's in there before they, you know, a drone drops a bomb on the place um, is, is basically it's this little um, anecdote, this little allegory about uh, Siegfried and Roy, about them, like how they're always playing with the tigers and taking these photos of the tigers. And then eventually uh, one of those efforts is going to maul your face off. And so basically (laughs) I just, I thought that was a great little analogy to basically how the guilty remnant had just kept screwing with people over and over and, you know, basically (laughs) doing like what amounts to terrorism Uh and thinking like, Oh, it's going to be fine. But like she knew, she knew that eventually, and it's probably what she wanted uh, but she knew eventually that like this was going to be the end result. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I don't think Evie knew that. Um, 
so I, I did I did really um, like that about her character. Um, yeah, another thing is is Matt is maybe probably my favorite character in in the series as frustrating as he is mm-hmm. uh like the moment that that won me over was in season season one where you know um kevin needs to dispose of patty's body he doesn't know and no one's going to believe him that he didn't kill her since he abducted her right. so he calls matt and matt comes out matt goes to close her eyes and he says you can't touch her um and Matt's like, why not? And he says, if if you touch her, we're we're in this together. And mm. Matt's like, then let's be in it. And he ah. closes his eyes. And so I'm thinking, like, this dude, you know, is a pastor who's helping his, you know, uh, not not brother-in-law exactly, but you know, his yeah. his friend at the time dispose of a body. Um, and I was thinking back to a story about um a friend of mine uh when i was going to a church uh down in forsyth county um him and his wife had been had you know taken mission trips to africa i think maybe they weren't just mission trips i think he was over there for a period of months or a year or whatever and he was talking about how the thing that the, that the kids always talked about or the thing that they remembered about him or that was most meaningful to him to them was not um you know anything that he said or a story that he told or whatever but like their little makeshift sewer pipe would get clogged up and that he would get down there with them and like rake that out mm. and basically talking about um, just the power of of having someone being willing to get in the mess with you and and help you, and that was what I always thought back to with what happened in in that scene with Matt and Kevin was Matt, you know, what a true friend he was of being willing to get. I mean, you're disposing of a body that's about, you know, it's 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 literally dirty and about as legally yeah. dirty as, as <laughs> you can get. Um, so I just I just always thought back to that. So Matt's like a, a character that would probably very much frustrate me in in real life uh, because of I, I tend to be just more logically minded on things. But uh, seeing that was uh, what what made him maybe you know my my favorite character in the whole series. But yeah, and that's such a great um, that was a very generous personality trait to give Matt too, mm-hmm. because that that relationship there with Kevin and Matt, especially in that moment, because Kevin and Matt philosophically, especially at that point in the show, right, not on the same wavelength. Um, yeah. Not that they ever really got there, but they learned to live with one another, you know, mm-hmm. and and be friends to an extent, you know, or family. I said that basically at one point. Um, and, and and I love giving Matt that quality of, yes, he is quick to jump to some of the most uh, supernatural conclusions on things. Yes, he is, but but his impulsiveness is not just for his own 
personal righteous confirmation, he is also fiercely loyal to the people that he cares about, or he grow he grows to that point. And I just think about people, you know, in hard times, people that maybe, yeah, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't go get lunch with or have in your fantasy football league or something. Right. But when stuff gets real, they're one of the first people who will come up to you and be like, I've got you and I've got right. your back and no one, no one's going to stop me from having your back in this situation. And, um, and that, that's friendship right there right. is, is not letting your lack of uh, common ground prevent you from, from living and serving one another. Mm-hmm. Right. Because people wow. are too different to, to have to rely on, well, we like each other, so I'll be loyal to you. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to rise beyond our, our differences. Uh, who, who, what am I talking about now? I'm talking like I'm some sort of activist or something. <laughs> um, but, but really, you know, we're, we're way too bound by our tribes now, you know, and not just our tribes, but our tribes within our tribes, you know, mm-hmm. um, greater, greater isolation, greater polarization. And that really prevents us from actually being yeah. there for one another when there's a need, mm-hmm. uh, because the needs have not stopped yeah. anything. They probably increased for reasons we don't really need to get into at this length of the podcast. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tim, did, did you uh, have, have some you wanted to bring up too? I had one quick. I feel Go bad. I know we're going long. Well, you mentioned a, a long uh, show. kind of a monologue, you know, that monologue. One monologue, I don't know why. Again, it's one of those things that just kind of stands out. And again, I was revisiting and kind of stumbled on this again, but um, so Nora Durst, you know, we mentioned that she talks with, uh, oh gosh, the name is Blake, Perfect Strangers. Um, Mark Lynn Baker. Yes, his name. Oh. Yeah. About this possibility of traveling to where the departed ended up. And so in one of the episodes, she is theoretically about to embark on this. And she's with Laurie and Matt. And she just starts crying because she's remembering a, a story about one of the first like memories that she had after her parents died when she was little, both of her parents had passed away. And she was at like a bait. You probably remember. Yeah. She was at a baseball game and um, this beach ball was kind of just being passed around in the stands. And she just like, she just, it was, she was just so enraptured by this. People were having fun. It was silly. It was just jovial. She was all in as this child. She was just enjoying this moment. And then an usher comes, snatches it, pops it. And she was just like, how could somebody like ruin that joy? And Lori, you know, she's like this kind of like rational, the, the voice of reason in a lot, of, a lot of the show, especially after the cult, uh, after that, you know, part of her life. And she says, well, because, you know, if the ball goes in the field, it'll be effing chaos. And the idea of like um, something that feels random and cruel um, may, you know, there may be a reason behind it. Now, not that I'm saying that is the actual reason for the sudden departure, but it was just an interesting story and an interesting way of kind of presenting another way of mm-hmm. looking at it. Not that I necessarily think that may or may not be the case, but it was just yeah. a, uh, an interesting moment. And I just thought, well, well, I think Matt, I think I'm with you. I think Matt was probably my favorite character, but, but Nora was, was up there for sure. She was just really intriguing to me. And that was one of my favorite stories that from like that she kind of shared. It was really powerful. Mm. Okay. Well, we have, we haven't reached the end of the episode, but I think we've <laughs> reached the end of the series now. So, um, I feel like especially maybe it's because 
So, Jared, just to give you some insight to what where my headspace was at, I think we might have been close to recording our Inception episode mm-hmm. right around the time I was finishing mm-hmm. The Leftovers. Mm-hmm. So I have this idea that we maybe I can't even remember if I've voiced it or not. Maybe I have. But so season three is building up to you already see what in the Lindelof verse we might as well just call flash forwards. Mm-hmm. Um and you find um, basically you find that Kevin and Nora find each other like what twenty years later, well, or something. Initially, yeah. even at the at the beginning of the season, at the at the end of the first episode, you know they've been talking about how they think it's building up to a flood. Well, the transition to the final scene of the season premiere is a dove. Like Kevin sees a dove flying up in the air oh, yeah. and, and then it flies over and then you land and you see like some sort of like weird doppelganger, older Nora who looks like she's living in like Ireland or <laughs> somewhere. You see like sheep out in the fields. But you see for me, I thought I saw the dove and I'm like, is this is this like some like post flood where like new earth like like new earth noah you know sort of sort of thing um so that was the first flash um yeah forward for that yeah and then and then you then get back to that little teaser in the series finale yeah so the season the final season has been building up to these two arcs of one uh, no pun intended story arcs um (laughs) of kevin preventing the apocalypse by dying and resurrecting again Mm -hmm. and nora coming to terms with the idea of trying to find this theoretical machine Mm -hmm. that could transport her to where those who had departed now reside right and and at the middle of the season was where her and kevin have this huge like blow up fight um in this australian hotel room (laughs) and he like says she says something about her children and and he says well why don't you go be with them and you know it's just this uh you know rough um split Mm-hmm. And and then you don't see them together, you know, f- until the uh, finale. Then yeah, and uh, there's a touching, albeit weird, moment in our third assassin uh, vision, whatever you want to call it, where Kevin is like with his doppelganger uh, as the president, like trying to um prevent nuclear war or something like that but uh but he ends up bleeding out with him and he tells himself like man we really we really effed up with nora you know um and just kind of living with that regret in that moment and so so let's just get to it here so (laughs) five years later kevin has has discovered nora living in rural australia and keeps calling her nora she is going by another name really goes in hard trying to pretend that she doesn't know him, mm-hmm. but eventually caves and they eventually have this conversation again, telling, not showing. Right. Um, right. Which between this conversation that Nora has with Kevin and the one that she has with Erica, man, there is just, whew, man, 
I'm with you now, Tim. When we started up again, he he referenced like how did she not get more accolades for for this yeah. show? Oh yeah, I, it was just complete robbery. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I probably gave it to Julia Louis Dreyfus for Veep or something. <laughs> um, Ken, they're probably not even they couldn't even, they're probably not in the same category. But anyway, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of some safe Academy pick. Um, like like used to be Frasier in the nineties, you know. Anyway, so in, anyways, weird weird uh, track to get off on there. Um, so they're they're having this discussion, and he's like, "Where have you been?" Like you know, he's so so they both they both just tell the tell each other what they've been up to, and Kevin um, says that he basically never stopped looking for her ever since they had that fight. Like he went home to Jarden and, and like raised his family, you know, till they, till they left or whatever. Um, but every vacation he got, he came back to Australia looking for her. Right. Um, well, and, and to that point, like you, you talking about the, the randomness of, or you guys talking about the randomness of stupid moments that are inconsequential like he even talks about how like he just couldn't live with the fact or accept the fact that that, you know, their last interaction was over like the stupid book of, yeah. you know, Matt's gospel, that it was just so meaningless and, and random that that would be the last thing. And yeah. so yeah. it's kind of like, you know, the people who can't live with, or like Meg not being able to live with, you know, the last thing her mother said, not being any, anything meaningful. Like he can't live with that being, you know, the last interaction oh, with Nora. Yeah. yeah. So Nora's story is that she did. And we do see her in the last episode before things jump forward, actually get into this machine. Um, and the, and the show cuts away before she's fully engulfed in the material that requires to send her. And she opens her mouth, and it's 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 intentionally ambiguous mm -hmm. as to whether or not she's about to scream or just gasping for one deep breath or something before it happens. Um, she's she again, they tell they don't show. So right. we just listen to Nora explain her story, which is that she got sent to the other place. She found her family, but her family had since moved on without her. Her husband had remarried. And was raising their kids. And what was, and what I thought was really interesting, regardless of where we end up on this story, is the fact that she posited the fact that they were an anomaly in a good way in, in, on, on the other side, if you could call it that. Yeah. Because wow. they were the only people who, who basically transported together as a family and mm -hmm. everyone else was alone. Right. Because mm. most people had only lost one person. So they were like the lucky ones over there mm. instead of the sad, instead of the pity ones that Nora, that Nora was. Mm. And so she said she, you know, after she saw that, she tracked down the creator of the device who, you know, had tested it on himself um, and got him to create one for her and sent her back or something. Um, and then she's in Australia now and live in life or whatever. Um, so nevertheless, like they, he, he, he also confesses, Kevin also confesses that he discovered he had a heart condition. Um, 
that went undiagnosed for years. And I think he, I can't remember how it comes up in conversation, but basically like he's, you know, he's not, he's not great. <laughs> he's not well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he confesses that. And so this really comes down to the conversation of did Nora really actually go or was she just lying because she couldn't, she could not, because she does have, what's one more lost reference. She has some Kate in her that she, she has a tendency to abandon situations when they get really, really tough. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you could make the, uh, you could make the argument that she, um, could not face reality to go back to Jordan. Um, after, after, um, you know, let's say she chickened out of the, of the device. Um, and so if, if that had been indeed been the case, um, could she show her face back home, you know? Right. Um, so anyway, um, so, so there is discussion over whether or not she really did go to that place or not. And, and in the discovery of that discussion, um, uh, my wife and I were talking and she had, I would say at least as a valid question, if we're going to ask that question of Nora is Kevin, was Kevin also actually dead right. three times or was his undiagnosed heart condition having an episode every time? Uh, and did he really resurrect? And so, um, what are your thoughts on those things? And, uh, let's, let's, let's talk that out. <laughs> You want to go first, Tim? Sure. It'll be it'll be simple. My, I I I I mean, obviously, this is the point. I don't know, and I kind of love that it could be either. I think I, I think in my heart, like I want to trust Nora, and I think I don't think she would lie. But the ambiguity, I think that's just the brilliance of the show is that they purposely don't show it, so you are left in this sort of limbo of doubt you know i don't know i i love it i i so i don't know if i have an answer either way but i think i don't know let the mystery be (laughs) i don't know i love it yeah um so for me like narratively it seems like it's building to you accepting the idea that that sometimes just a good story is is better than the truth like if you go all the way back i mean you can go through the whole series but especially like if we just stay within the season if you go back to the premiere where john and uh laurie have taken over for as steven says eddie winslow i can't remember the character's (laughs) name they've taken over that business of um basically comforting people Mm. who you know are going through grief and um, John sort of acts as the psychic and Laurie is upstairs like on the internet and social media finding out details about the family. There's yeah. a guy whose father committed suicide on his birthday and, and he wants to know why. And so they're basically, they're, they're helping them. And, and so, you know, you even had, I mean, just in a different way, like all the way going back to season one of the guy, um, and I can't remember the, the character's name, but like the sort of cult leader, um, Wayne, who, who, is it Wayne, Holy yeah, Wayne, or, or something? Holy, Holy, Holy Wayne. That's, holy it, Wayne. that's it. Yeah. Where he was giving people hugs, and somehow, like, 
making them feel like he had taken their pain away. Mm-hmm. And and when he died, you know, he's like, am I real or am I a fraud? And, you know, all these things. So, yeah. so anyway, you can go way, way back, way back. Um, but if you look through the third season, so you've got that at the beginning. And then even within the finale episode where Nora goes to the nun trying to figure out where the doves are, mm-hmm. there's a man climbing down out of the nun's bedroom window and he gets on a motorcycle and drives away. And, and she's like, who, who is that man? You know, and she's like, oh, you must be thinking of father so-and-so. He's like <laughs> the guy climbing out of your bedroom and getting on the motorcycle. And so anyway, so, so Laura, um, failed Jedi mind trick. <laughs> right. Yeah, pretty much. And so Nora knows, like, she's like, you're having sex with this guy. And she's like, no, absolutely not. You know? <laughs> and so anyway, so then the closest the nun comes to admitting it is, is she says it's a better story. Um, mm-hmm. so it's setting up for you to, to just believe like, okay, this is a lie that Nora told. However, and I've already told Stephen this, and you you may know this, um, Tim, or you you might not be a complete freak like me that just reads every like <laughs> interview with the creator and finds these little uh, nuggets. But so so they you know they interviewed Tom Parada and Damon Lindelof after the series was over, and of course that was the big question for everybody was did Nora really go over? And mm-hmm. neither one of them would ever really say. Parada I think came closer to basically saying that he didn't intend it that way that no, Mm. no, she didn't. Lindelof would, would never really say, but what was interesting was he said that they never had a conversation with Carrie Coon about how to play that or whether or not Mm. Nora really went over. And so Lindelof said, after seeing the scene, like the finished, you know, product and episode, he believes her. (laughs) So, So how do you process that? Like the writer, if the writer of the episode intended one thing, but the actor's performance was different or so convincing that it made the showrunner believe it, (laughs) then what's the real truth? And that, that to me, that to me is like such a great little, you know, mind F for, but, but such a, such an, um, you know, a microcosm of the leftovers as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, so I'm going to give the cop out answer, um, which was inspired by reading about inception, which is to say, I don't think the truth, I wouldn't say truth, the, the truth matters, but I don't think the truth is the point. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, of the scene. I think yeah. what we're probably really getting at is the same, resolution we're getting at the end of every season is that they're finding each other again. And, and I think too, I think I read somewhere, Jared, I don't know if this came from you or if I just found it somewhere else, but it, but it almost like this idea of Nora's speech there, like testing Kevin. Yeah. Right. To see, to see if he would be like, well, that's too crazy for me. Right. I'm going to go back to Texas. And, And he does it. He's just like, no, like he's reliving his own, yeah. either hallucination or real thing, which says I messed up with Nora. And so like from that moment on, really he's committed to not messing that up again. Right. And, and nothing's going to take that from him. And so, um, I, I think at its core, 
it's about both of them coming to terms with being satisfied with with committing to one another. Yeah. Um, which is not to say above others, but above not committing to anything at all. Right. Um, because, and I'd say for Nora, you know, because of the fear of more loss and for Kevin, I think just over the course of the show, realizing that he's always needed that and he needs to actually nurture a relationship because he needs relationship. Right. Um, I mean, humanity needs each other. Um, it's so hard to embrace right now because a lot of times we're seeing the worst of each other, but we do need each other. Um, and, uh, and, you know, on, on a philosophical and a spiritual level, I think, I think words do matter and, and meaning does matter and, 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 uh, things do have purpose, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're just, um, isolation is um is 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 a pain that we we don't realize too often we don't we don't want um yeah and 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 isolation is one of those things too especially when it comes to you know we'd say a departure in this situation but in things like grief and death it's the kind of thing you don't realize how much you don't want it till you're past a point where you can't do anything about it right um with a person. And, and so, um, you know, even though I I pretend to be coy about this, my, my true takeaway is really just the reconciliation of the relationship Mm -hmm. in that situation. And, and cause like, like Christopher Nolan said about Leonardo DiCaprio spinning the top, like the point is that he's not looking at it anymore. He chooses to walk away from it. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's spinning or not. Um, he has embraced, this the yeah. vision before him as the mm-hmm. reality that he's going to commit to yeah. and and I, and I see that with both of them um it's mm-hmm. it's it's i will say it's it's just really well written from the beginning to the end that the show is weird enough for it to be true yeah mm-hmm. and it is also interlaced with enough explanation and rationale for mm-hmm. it not to be true yeah. right um so you can't really and and they and they did that even with with Jared's account here in a meta sense. Mm-hmm. They even they even did the exact same thing with. Well, I actually thought it was a lie, but then when I saw it, it changed. She changed my mind. Yeah. Like so, like right. so, like it's this counterbalance mm-hmm. constantly going on in yeah. the show, yeah. which is why we titled the yeah. episode what we did. Yeah, let the mystery be. Yeah, well, I think what you said about like how the 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 answer is in the point. Like so, these people are struggling with these questions. And wrestling, you know, with the meaning of life, I mean, all these big things, and it's almost like they're wrestling with something that's ultimately unknowable. So, like in the process, it's almost mm-hmm. like the point isn't reaching that answer, but it's like the process is almost like understanding yourself better and understanding who you are better, and understanding, and so almost like the, their need for each other, then you know, Kevin's need and her need. Yeah. I don't know. It just it's almost like that's it, the, almost like the struggle is partially the answer i don't know if you're going to watch a show or a movie and you see damon lindelof's name you, you should just go ahead and just resign yourself to what tim just said the answer isn't the point yeah <laughs> um and, and you know that used to be a punchline, but i'm starting to see it more now mm. for the value that it is yeah. Yeah. it was um and i think part of that is my own personal maturity as a viewer mm. but also his growth as as yeah. a creator 
too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because Watchmen, which maybe we'll get to talk about that one day. That would be mm. fun. Um, yeah. ha- also has some some unanswered moments yeah. as well that are pretty substantial. <laughs> yeah. um, but don't but, t- don't talk about any of those because but, I still have to see. It. Oh, okay, but but, but <laughs> yeah. also not the point. Yeah, you know right. I mean? yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, so maybe, maybe we can, uh, maybe Jerry can be our HBO correspondent for going forward. Yeah. <laughs> we can, um, have a one for that kind of stuff, but, uh, yeah, that, that would be fun to do in the future. But, um, mm-hmm. anyways, so it's, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, we have to sometimes, and I think that's the thing too, is I think there's value in that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get so focused on the answers that we lose sight of what, what it is, you know, I mean, listen, the sky in San Francisco right now is orange. It looks like the cover of a left behind novel. Um, and, uh, I stole that from the internet, uh, somebody (laughs) else, but, 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 um, you know, there are people which (sighs) I'm sorry, I'm a bad person, but it's people that are easy to laugh at about this pandemic, trying to find the hidden, barcodes that are going to be implanted in people's foreheads and stuff about this kind of stuff. People are looking for the answers and they're not finding the meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, well, it's like Dean uh, in, in season three with the, with uh, when he, you know, I don't think we see him at all in season two. um, But he, or wait, no, no, no. Maybe he was in the international assassin episode. I don't remember. Anyway, um, so he comes back to Kevin in, in season three and it's played up like this dramatic thing. Um, and then it's that he thinks that dogs are turning <gasps> yes. into people. You know, he's got the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that is oh, yeah. evidence of the canine DNA. Mm, and, yes. and again, and, and now I'm sitting here like, again, thinking about like to, I think, I think QAnon pulled that one exactly. I think maybe that's one of their tenants of it. I don't, I don't remember exactly. But but again, like all of these things where it's like uh, this show more. And again, I'm not just saying this because we're, we're talking about it, but this show probably more than any other piece of art or fiction out there is kind of like relates to what we're dealing with now to me better than um, almost anything mm-hmm. else out there. Six months ago, yeah. we thought Tiger King was going to be the show of 2020, but <laughs> yeah. it's really the leftovers. Yeah. Um, sadly. Yeah. But and, well, true. and hopefully, hopefully maybe 2020 has the same, uh, I'll try to use that as, as a segue into the, I guess the last thing I can think of that I wanted to mention was, um, hopefully 2020 has the same sort of endpoint as, um, Lindelof had for season three and ultimately for the series is, he his he said the question that he wanted to answer was, uh, you know, what happens when the apocalypse doesn't come, you know, mm-hmm. and and so of course that's kind of what we've been talking about for yeah. the leftovers as a whole for the people that are left behind, um, but you know w- within the within the show too we we see that from or within season three especially like the. Um, is it like a the Mennonite woman or what, whatever? Oh, like, yes. the beginning. At, oh at the my beginning, goodness. Yeah. The, the, I wish the, we'd all been ready. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so her and the family in the whatever 1800s or I don't know, yeah. are like going up onto the rooftop yeah. at night thinking that the rapture is going to come. Um, and you know, and it never does. And she drives her family away and, and you see all that. And so then that's, 
um, you know, just a, a comp for what you see with, with some of the other stuff with, mm-hmm. uh, all these other characters. And so, yeah, he said that was the, the question he wanted to answer was, you know, what happens when the apocalypse doesn't come? So. Do you, do you think they stood on the roof because they were afraid they were going to be broken through the ceiling? That's a good question. I, I thought, I thought well, I only I'm, thought about that right now. <laughs> There, there I go, missing the meaning for the question. No, 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 no. Tim, you sound, like, you sound like you have an idea on that. I've, no, no, I was just saying, same as oh. you, uh, Jared, I was going to say I hadn't thought about that until now, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it could be, and that would tie back to... It's not a lot um, of faith. That, that, that's not a lot of faith, but, you know, but, <laughs> but it, it ties back to that season one opening where people are literally, like, being pulled up, you know... Yeah, into the sky. I never thought I thought it was just like a show of I just thought of it as a show of faith of like almost of like standing at the door Mm, to welcome someone. But like a step beyond that of like, we think you're coming from the sky. So we're going to be standing on the roof. But I think actually I like your I like your theory there. Your little, (laughs) you know, throwing that out there better is that they thought that they'd be like yanked through the roof and, you know, broken bones and splinters and stuff. Yeah. Yikes. Mm. Well, guys, um, I got to admit, for my personal lack of preparation for tonight, this has been a very engaging conversation. <laughs> yeah. I've, um, I've enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for bringing everything to it. Uh, do do um, before, before I start my uh, weekly wrap up here um it, 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 is there anything else you wanted to cover about the show i hate that i could not find the track um that i was talking about but maybe i can find it before tim gets done producing it and we can just throw it in yeah yeah uh, for sure later but we'll see what happens um any any uh items uh relating to the leftovers we want to we want to clean up on before we go i think i've i think i've covered everything i wanted to yeah, I think so too. I was I I told someone a long time ago that I almost would like <laughs> recommend this to anyone. Like we can all share this because we all attend like Christian colleges. But like anybody that has any sort of faith background or is, I almost like a show that I would recommend that people of faith to watch. Yes, so like it really makes you confront not in a bad way, not in like a hey I'm gonna throw a wrench into your thinking, but it's almost like hey, it really helps you explore thoughts and ideas that you normally kind of avoid. You know, I don't. Yeah, I. OK, now I, I'm i a liar because now that you say that, so I, I, don't, I have one more thing sorry. that I want to say is, is no, I like this. This sounds bad in, in a way. And, and I don't mean like in the context of overall faith. But yeah, I would like for people to watch it in the sense of I would like for people to be less certain about some of their yeah. beliefs. Yes, um, because because certainty that that is one thing that I have a real um, issue with is is the certainty that people have for their own um, self protection of like mm-hmm. I a friend of mine's mom uh, I haven't spoken to in in a while like around like when when all of this started with COVID um, she was sending this stuff around about um, you know like how you know we're just we're in the end times blah blah blah. And the conversation kind of kept escalating to where she's like, you need to admit that that these are the end times and probably a better person would have handled it better than what I did. (laughs) Um, But I'm just like, 
no, you, you need to stop doing this, you know? So, and, but it's just like, it's this certainty in pursuit of protecting my peace of mind. Like this is real and Mm -hmm. I, I I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to rethink anything. Um, this is what's happening. This is what's going to happen. Never mind if it's just a bulldozer coming to pulverize everything else in the way of everyone else Mm -hmm. in my life. This is what makes me feel good at just absolutely near the, the top of my list of, of pet peeves. So absolutely to, to your point there. Yes. I wish Mm -hmm. people would watch it for me for that specific reason of just stop being so certain about things that have impacts on other people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I feel like people are afraid that when we say this, we're kind of attacking the beliefs and I think it's it's more of not even attacking but it's more of attempting to understand our own ability to believe like I feel like as not to get too philosophical our humans like our brains we want to be able to rationalize everything right but at the same time we're not capable of being fully rational you know if that makes sense like right. we are, are we're too fallible we're too limited we just we can't be as rational as our brains want to, want us to be and I feel like we're too quick yeah to want to be certain about everything and it's just it can't be right i'll i'll just add on to the top of that by trying to be trying to be succinct with my uh, contribution to this is to say a faith that is unwrestled with uh uninvestigated and undissected is not a faith worth having Mm. um which is not to say anything of the value of faith, obviously that's paramount and it's value to me individually and any of our listeners who know me personally would, shouldn't be confused at all by that. Um, but you know, I, I think about Matt in that show, like he, he had to wrestle his faith meant enough to him that he was, I'm going to say this carefully so much for being succinct, but he, 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 he was, he was willing to be humiliated for, for the integrity of it. Um, and you know, whenever he had his most trying moments, the things that he was willing to go that far for were the things that were worth protecting. Right. Um, um, so, you know, obviously I'm not trying to create a bunch of religious extremists here or anything like that, but, um, you, if you want your faith to be strong, you have to be strong enough to question it. Um, and, and when I say question it, I mean, actually study it, not like, not let some, um, I'm sorry, this is probably going to be petty and and unkind, but not let some, you know, dollar store atheist make some straw man argument at your faith and let it come crashing down. Mm-hmm. Cause like if, if Richard Dawkins can talk you away from Christianity, then, then I don't know how, how good you had it in the first place, you know, read your Bible more. Um, but anyway, I, listen, I'm, I'm getting into shot taking <laughs> and I, and I, I, I didn't really mean to do that. I just, I just want to encourage people, especially people who consider themselves people of faith, like, like own that steward it. Um, mm-hmm take care of it. And, and, and to do that, you have to nurture it and you have to know the ins and outs of it. And, and, you know, you don't have to have a seminary degree to do that. You just need, you need to look at the, um, you know, the Bible is very much one of these don't, 
don't lose the answer. Don't focus on the answers to miss the meaning Mm -hmm. situations. Like, okay. If the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs, like, you know, the, (laughs) the people, the people who build vocations and, and businesses and enterprises based off of those sort of tertiary things and fitting them into the God's narrative. Like that's not the story that he's telling. Like Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that that stuff is absent. That's just, that's just not in his story arc. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And so like focus on the story arcs, like the, the story arc of the least of Christian faith is built in it is built in first of all it says multiple times two pretty big commandments loving god and loving your neighbor and and mm-hmm. and, and if you if you and that can take a lifetime to try to master in the first yeah. place um and maybe even beyond that maybe we'll find out one day so yeah. um to, just just that to say that yeah it, it, you know i i wouldn't i wouldn't take something that has such potential eternal value so lightly mm-hmm. you know if, if, if it's really that valuable and it means that much to you um then, then you should you should be able to handle it well and you can't really handle things well unless you kind of know it from all sides i don't know i don't think any yeah. of that made sense but what, what, <laughs> what the, uh, yeah i get it, it. did, did yeah, to me sure. I don't know. um <laughs> Anyways, uh, thanks. Thanks for the sermon. We'll be passing around an offering plate uh, in the next <laughs> minute um, to to buy more beverages for us. Uh, so this because we keep doing these almost three hour shows and we're going to need to. There's a, is a PayPal is a PayPal link. Yeah, like we can set the yeah, version think, of an I, offering plate. I think <laughs> we'll start a Patreon here soon. Um, <laughs> And and find some other ways to uh, an to, offer an so. offering an offering Patreon. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I like it. I got to end with a bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, um, well, we'll have that. We'll have that uh, divine jet just yet, guys. Um, <laughs> all right. In all seriousness, thank you guys for joining us for this conversation tonight. I uh, hope that you got something out of it. Um, if you, if if anything, uh, if you've never watched the leftovers, I'd, I'd encourage you to watch it. It certainly stokes a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts, and it and it clearly is um fertilizer for great conversation for for deep conversation um and 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 lots of themes and stuff throughout the show very well acted very talented cast um you can find it on hbo max uh at any time because it's an hbo property so it'll probably be there forever um and if you um want to uh, give us any suggestions uh, i've already posted this on our instagram and facebook pages but in the month of october we are going to plan on trying to um, hone in on some horror movies based on fan suggestions. We've already gotten a few already, um, so we're going to try to line those up, but we're just going to try to narrow them down some and see what, we, uh, what we're what we able to, to focus on and do for the month of October. So if you're interested in that, reach out to us, um, Night Cheese with Stephen and Tim on Instagram, uh, at Pod Night Cheese on Twitter, and uh, of course Night Cheese with Stephen and Tim on Facebook as well if you're interested in contributing to that. Um, of course, also if you just happen to know us in real life, uh, like my mother uh, you could just <laughs> you could just give me a call and, and tell me what uh film uh-huh. uh, so anyway i won't embarrass my mother though she did give a pretty good recommendation though that i was surprised to hear from my mother uh of all people so anyways the things you learn later on in life all right well everybody um thank you guys for joining us and until next time keep working on your night cheese
I'm I'm not trying yeah. to pat ourselves on the back, but it definitely <laughs> it is the best podcast ever made. No, um, 